All right, hello, Christ community. Greetings to our 15th Street campus and our uh, West Campus, as well as our Traditions venue. So glad that all of you are here today. Hey, there are a couple of things on my heart that I wanted to um, mention before we jump into the actual message. First of all, um, we, we are all reeling from the horrible shooting um, last Sunday morning at a church in, in Texas, and our hearts are filled with grief and sadness for that community, and I encourage you to continue to pray. There's a long recovery there. Continue to pray for victims and all those that have been impacted. And I'm sure there's, a, there's another dynamic at work here, too, as well as grief and sadness. I, I'm sure that many of us have probably had some twinges of fear. If that could happen there, why, what about here? And, and I just want to just, just remind us our job as believers in Jesus is to shine the light of Jesus' love into a dark world. Um, so that's what we as a church are going to do. We're not going to be ruled by fear. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. God doesn't want us living in fear. And so that's what we're going to keep focusing on as a church, as individuals here. We're going to focus on loving people and pointing them to Jesus. Now, having said that, we are also to be wise and prudent, um, which is why we have a security team in place at our services. We actually could use some more volunteers on this team. So if you are interested in being a part of this team, it's a rotating kind of team. If you're interested in that, just send an email to info at cccgreeley.org and just put security, the word security somewhere in the email along with your contact information. And also, if you're in law enforcement and this is your church home, we would love for you to prayerfully consider being involved on this team as well. Okay, so the other thing that I wanted to mention is the fact that next weekend we are having baptisms in our services. Baptism is a really cool thing. It is an opportunity for a believer in Jesus to publicly declare their faith in him. It is something that Jesus commands us to do as believers. It is not a way to be saved, but it is an important symbol of salvation. And it's an opportunity to be nourished in our faith as believers. So... If you have never been baptized as a believer in Jesus, I urge you to do so next weekend. Whether you have recently come to know Christ in our Alpha class or maybe in one of our services, you prayed that prayer with me, or, or maybe you've known Jesus for a long time, but you have never been baptized. Um, this also includes those of you who were baptized as infants. Um, if you were baptized as an infant, like I was, that is a demonstration of your parents' desire for you. But now that you have made a commitment to Christ for yourself, it's important for you to be baptized as a reflection of your relationship with Christ and faith in him. So there is a brochure in your newsletter. All of you can see that. It's in the newsletter you were handed. There's a brochure with more information. Also, there is a very important baptism orientation this coming Tuesday um, at Zoe's for anyone who's wanting to be baptized and the information is in there. So there may be some of you who have been putting this off for a number of reasons. You know, oh, the time just doesn't feel right or my friends aren't going to be there, all those things. But ultimately, this is about you and your relationship with Jesus, obeying him. And so I just want to encourage you, don't miss out on something very significant that God has for you. I encourage you to be baptized next week. 
Okay, if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. We're in the midst of a a teaching series entitled Reality Check, where we are looking at, at Jesus' words from the book of Luke and letting these words impact how we view and experience various aspects of life. Well, in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 21, Jesus is focusing on the issue of freedom how we can experience freedom in our lives. Earlier in the book of Luke, in chapter 4, Jesus declares that his ministry is to set the captives free. And, and, and now, here in, in, in chapter 13, we see Jesus doing that very, very thing. <clears throat> in this passage, he directly confronts two, two specific forces that seek to, to bind us and hold us captive. And so let me read this passage beginning in Luke 13, uh, here, verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, Be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is God's word. So in this passage, Jesus longs to set two people free from things that are holding them captive. And we are all vulnerable to the exact same things in our lives. These two things will hold us captive and will keep us from walking in freedom. So let's look more closely at these two people that we meet in this passage. The first is a woman who for 18 years has been bent over and and could not straighten up at all. Can you imagine the anguish of living in this condition for that long of a time, nearly 20 years doubled over, unable to straighten her body? Not only does Luke describe the condition, he also gives us, he reveals the reason for this condition. He tells us that there was a demonic spirit, a demon that had caused this. And later on in the passage, Jesus says that Satan has kept her bound for 18 long years. So this condition clearly has a demonic source to it. Now, Luke is not saying that every disease has a demonic source. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that Luke is a physician. He was a physician. He's a med- he was a medical doctor. So this isn't simply a case of some archaic culture, you know, attributing everything to some, some demons. That's not what's happening here. As a physician, Luke acknowledges the reality of medical conditions, but he also acknowledges the reality of demonic activity in people's lives that can impact them physically. I remember reading a a quote from M. Scott Peck, who's a well-known psychiatrist and author. For years, Peck denied the existence of demons. He didn't believe that they, 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 they existed until 
He personally witnessed the demonic encounter, a particular demonic encounter with one of his patients, and his skepticism immediately disappeared. See, Satan is real, and he has a host of emissaries known as demons who are focused on carrying out his plans. And sometimes, as we see in this passage, these plans involve some physical conditions. Now, again, I'm not saying every sickness, every disease is demonic. I'm not saying that. But it could be. A particular sickness or disease could be. And if it happens to be, Jesus shows us how to battle that. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, He called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. So the power of Jesus drives out this demonic presence and the woman is immediately healed. She is set free to use the language that Jesus uses a couple times in this passage. It's clearly the theme of this passage, set free. She is set free. So when we have a physical condition that we feel is being caused by some demonic presence, we need to use the name of Jesus and take authority over that. We command it to leave in Jesus' name. This doesn't have to be some big, hairy, you know, dramatic thing, and we don't have to shout, okay? We can just tell it to leave because Jesus has given us his authority over every demonic presence, I remember a number of years ago, my wife Raylene had a horrible um, foot condition um, in her arch, both arches. It was horrible, and she couldn't stand for very long and walk, and it went on for months and months. And we called some friends over to come and pray for healing, and they came over to our house, and they prayed for healing, and she was healed she was healed. It was really, really cool. Her condition improved dramatically and, and after they prayed. But we noticed that every once in a while, that pain would return. It would return. And we started to realize that this <clears throat> returning of this pain was a demonic attack. Because whenever we would pray a warfare sort of prayer over this, the pain would immediately leave again. And so we figured out, this is demonic. This is just kind of demonic oppression here. And so it still will periodically return, show up, and we will treat it, we just treat it the same way. We pray over her in the name of Jesus in this kind of realizing this is probably a demonic oppression. In that case, that's what is going on. So sometimes our physical ailments can have a demonic connection, and we want to at least kind of explore that as a possibility if we sense it to deal with it the way Jesus does. But I want to expand this discussion a bit because I think that we're seeing today, we're actually seeing a shift in Satan's strategy um, from what we're reading about in this culture to our culture. In our context today, Satan's strategy to keep us in bondage is often directed more towards our hearts and minds rather than our physical bodies. That's just my sense, and I think it, you know, it, it just plays out in, in what we're observing around here. Satan loves to use wounds emotional wounds, wounds in our past and pain in our past to whisper his lies to our hearts. You're worthless. No one could love you. You're such a failure. Why don't you just end it all? No one would ever notice. No one would even miss you. These are lies that we hear. I know of so many young people right now who are battling suicidal thoughts. I hear from their parents that they're battling suicidal thoughts, and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. 
Now, I realize this is a huge area in terms of mental health and all of that, and I am so grateful for the mental health professionals that we have in this community, okay? But having said that, I do totally believe that. There's a whole mental health thing going on. But I also think that we need to at least put in the mix the reality of an enemy who loves to whisper lies to our hearts. And the problem is we often believe these lies. It's not even a conscious decision. Oh, that's Satan and I'm going to believe his lie. That's not how it works. We just assume these thoughts are our thoughts. We assume there are thoughts. I'm a loser. No one loves me. I'm worthless. I don't have what it takes. See, these lies, they get lodged in our hearts and they start impacting every area of our lives. They hold us captive. Literally, they hold us captive. I'm quite certain this woman in this story, she had plenty of these lies that she was believing. I mean, imagine the shame and the worthlessness that she felt. She couldn't do much of anything. She couldn't hold her grandchildren, right? She couldn't keep a job. She couldn't help around the house. She felt like she had nothing to offer. And in that place where the enemy was probably whispering all sorts of lies and shame, in that place, Jesus ministered to his heart. This is so powerful. Look at what happens here. Luke tells us that while Jesus was standing up on Sabbath, he was standing up at the synagogue, he was teaching in the synagogue, he noticed her. Jesus noticed her. He sees her condition, and he immediately calls her forward. Now we know, we just read it, we know from later in the passage, this rabbi in the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue, he wasn't going to call her forward. He, well, he wasn't going to it. He wasn't going to pray for her, right? He, he was ignoring her condition. He was ignoring her pain and her situation, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus notices her and he calls her to himself and then he touches her. Had anyone touched her in years? Jesus touches her. And finally, he speaks truth to her heart. You, woman, you are set free. See, this is exactly how Jesus ministers to us in our places of wounding and pain, where the enemy may be trying to lie to us. This is exactly what Jesus does to us. He notices us. He notices us. He calls us to himself. He touches us with his love. He speaks truth to our hearts. And that truth sets us free when we choose to believe it. When we choose to believe it. I remember meeting with a 25-year-old-ish um, person and, and, and a, a guy, and, and we were praying about his relationships. Um, and he, he seemed to struggle just to kind of stay in any dating relationship. He just had a hard time kind of staying in a relationship like that. And so we spent some time in this prayer process where we asked Jesus to speak into this. And God, as we were praying, God brought to his mind this memory of being on a sports team in high school. And he, um, during the season, he had an injury. He was injured and he couldn't play, but instead of rallying around him, his team turned against him. His team rejected him. He felt all alone, felt all alone. And in that place, God revealed in our prayer time, in that place, he realized that the enemy had whispered some very strategic lies to his heart in that place of pain. You're on your own. You are on your own. You're, you're, you're alone. You can't trust anyone. You can't trust anyone, certainly not your teammates. So you just can't trust anyone. And see, he believed these lies. He didn't realize, he didn't consciously, he just believed these lies, which began impacting how he related to people. 
those lies hung, hung, they just lodged in his heart. And that included how he related and how he experienced dating relationships and how he had trouble committing himself in a dating relationship. See, this wasn't a conscious decision on his part. The enemy is way too subtle for that. He doesn't show up with a pitchfork on your front door. Here's a lie I want you to believe. He doesn't do that. He brings us into bondage by whispering lies to our hearts in our places of pain, our places of wounding. And these are lies that we just believe because we assume they're our thoughts. We assume they're true. And so what brings healing into these places is Jesus' truth. The Holy Spirit whispering to our hearts the truth of who we are in him, that we are loved in him, that we are accepted in him. Perhaps this is why Jesus said in John 8, 32, you, then, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what we need. See, that's how Jesus heals our hearts and sets us free from the shackles that the enemy tries to place us in. Jesus does this by reaching out in love and speaking truth to our hearts. So here's the good news, folks. No matter where you are at in this battle, in any battle like we're describing here, in, no matter where you're at in this battle, Jesus wants you to know he sees you. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He longs to touch you in those places of pain, those painful places in your hearts. And he wants to bring his freedom. He wants to bring his truth and freedom into those places. And by the way, if you feel stuck or held captive in a certain area, we have a prayer ministry that is just focused on this, really. It's called Hope Abounds. And it just helped. We have trained people who will walk you through a prayer process to experience greater freedom through these issues by identifying what the lies are we're believing and having Jesus speak truth into those places. So if you're interested in that, I encourage you to call the church office for an appointment. Again, it's called Hope Abounds. You can call the church office and make an appointment. Okay, so that's one area of our lives in which Jesus brings freedom. It's the area of Satan's activity. But what's clear in this passage is that this woman is not the only person in bondage to something. That there is someone else who is missing out on freedom as well. And that someone happens to be the synagogue leader. The synagogue leader. He, he is not in bondage to Satan's activity. He's in bondage to something else. He's in bondage to religion. He's in bondage to religion so let's unpack this. One of, the, one of the repeated themes in this passage, you see it right off the bat, is the Sabbath, right? Luke mentions it right off the bat. He wants us to know this takes place on the Sabbath because it's critical to understand what's happening in this passage. So it, it happens, on, Jesus healed this woman on a Sabbath day, which resulted in a very negative response from the leader of the synagogue. Verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed the woman on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the, to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Okay, so what's happening here? Why is he upset? Here, here's why. This synagogue leader was influenced by a group of people in that particular day who took God's word very seriously. They were known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not evil people. 
They were not evil people. They sincerely wanted to follow God. They sincerely wanted to obey God's commands. So what they did was take God's commands in the Old Testament. They took some of these commands and they were trying to help people know how to apply those commands. That's what they were trying to do. One of the most significant commands for them was the God's command regarding the Sabbath, to honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That's right out of the Ten Commandments. This is Moses stuff here. This is important. God said it was important to honor the Sabbath by not doing work on that day. So in an effort to help people apply and obey this command, the Pharisees created this huge list of minute regulations, if you will, this, this list of things that you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. So, for instance, they determined that you could only walk a certain distance on a Sabbath day, and if you walked any further than that, even just by a step, that would be considered work. They had the specific distance figured out, right? They, they also, they, they also um, decided that if you lifted a certain object of a, of a particular weight, or, or larger than that, that would be considered work. So you could pick up some this, but you couldn't pick up that because that would be considered work. And then they, dis- they also decided that if you healed someone that didn't have a life-threatening emergency, if you healed that person on the Sabbath, that was considered work. Okay, so when the synagogue leader saw Jesus heal this woman on the Sabbath, he was livid. He was livid. He said to the people, there are six days for work. Right? He's saying to the people who just saw Jesus do this, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on another day. See, his religious observance had blinded him to the heart of God, which Jesus immediately points out. Verse 15, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. See, their laws, their laws allowed them to set free. That's the word Jesus uses here, even though it's translated differently in the NIV. It says, untie your ox. The word literally is set free. He uses the same word for both. So Jesus is saying, look, your laws, your laws, your man-made laws allow you to set free your ox on a Sabbath to give it water. But you won't pray for a woman to be set free from this horrible condition that has bound her. See, their their religious zeal, their interpretation, their misinterpretation of Scripture caused them to miss the whole point of the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath is about freedom. The Sabbath is about wholeness. The Sabbath is about life and joy. But the Pharisees turned it into this heavy burden, this list of do's and don'ts. They became blind to the heart of God in the midst of their man-made religious rules. They were in bondage to this, and they were putting other people in bondage to their religious rules and missing the heart of God, which got me thinking, okay, where do we do this? Where, where do we do this same thing? 
Keeping certain rituals on the Sabbath is not a struggle for most of us, okay? We don't have a list of, you know, maybe some of you grew up in a home like that or church like that, but today we typically don't have this list of things you can and can't do on a, on a Sabbath day. Um, we do struggle to actually practice a Sabbath rhythm, uh, to actually take one day out of seven where we don't do work, but, but that's another sermon. Okay, um, that's not the issue in this passage. The issue in this passage is this question, where, where are our religious observances and misapplications of certain Bible passages actually blinding us to the heart of God? Where is this same thing happening in our lives? So I just started to go back through historic, historically, right, through history. And I mean, it grieves my heart to acknowledge that 150 years ago, there were Bible-believing Christians in America who were using passages in the Bible to argue for slavery. They were using passages from Genesis and other places to argue for the idea that one race is superior to another. Now we look at that and we think, how could anyone use the Bible in that way? But it, the reality is, it happened, and the reality is we are all susceptible, maybe not in that area, but we're all susceptible to having blind spots, areas where our religious observances or practices actually miss the point, that actually miss God's heart. So try to get a little more close to home here. One that I personally wrestle with is this whole political climate today. You know, people are so polarized on certain issues. So when I see or read someone expressing a view that's very different than mine, it's easy for me to start feeling anger towards them, maybe even a little bit of hatred towards them, right? It's easy for me to demonize them in my own mind. And here's what I'm wrestling with. Sometimes I feel justified in doing this because my position is connected to a principle or a truth in the Bible, so I feel justified in hating this person, but, but hold it, e even if it is connected to a biblical principle, am I ever justified in hating or denigrating a human being that is created in the image of God? I can easily become blinded by my own religious observances that I completely miss God's heart. I completely miss his love for other people. Another example in this whole political realm we can become blinded by our own political party affiliation, assuming that our party is more spiritual than the other party. And we conveniently ignore positions within our own party that don't reflect God's heart. But we ignore those things. See, our political passion can sometimes blind us to God's heart. Another blind spot, huge blind spot, I think, that comes to mind in trying to apply this passage, is how women are sometimes viewed or treated in a marriage relationship. In Ephesians 5, Paul has this beautiful description of how marriage is this picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. And in this description, Paul distinguishes between the role of husband and the role of wife. And he uses the word head to describe this. He says the husband is head of the wife. Now, some men hear this, they read this verse, and they immediately assume that head means CEO, ruler, authority, the one in charge, the one who controls the finances, the one who makes all the big decisions. I mean, you get the idea. But in the culture in which Paul was writing, this Greek word, kephale, this Greek word for head, 
was not used in this CEO authoritative way. It wasn't. In fact, you see in this passage, Paul actually defines what headship looks like. He defines it by using the example of Jesus. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. See, according to Paul, headship is not about power. It is not about control. It is not about authority. It's about loving and serving. But I talk to guys all the time who use Ephesians 5 as a justification for their control issues. Why their wife has to get all her purchases approved by him. And why he has to make all the final decisions without really listening to her or valuing her perspective. And the wife in these marriages is dying on the vine. She feels devalued. She feels ignored. She feels that her heart, her mind, her opinions don't matter. She is being held captive in her own home by a husband who is interpreting the Bible in a way that misses the heart of the passage. Now, someone may, may ask, well, what about submission? It's in there. What about submission? And absolutely. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Absolutely. But what's fascinating to note is that the word submit is not actually found in the original verse, right? It's not found in this original verse in verse 22. And the reason it's not found in verse 22 is because the verb is used in the previous verse. And here's the previous verse, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives to your husbands. He doesn't even repeat the verb. Clearly, the, 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 the foundational command in this passage is mutual submission. That's the principle in all of our relationships. And then he begins to apply it to, to, to marriage. Now, please hear me. I do, I, I do believe there is a unique leadership role given to the husband in marriage. Headship means something, right? I do believe that. But it is not the rule, it's, excuse me, it is not the role of CEO. It's the, it's the role of chief servant. Chief servant. Loving our wife by laying down our life for her. Protecting her heart. Providing for her needs. See, in the culture in which this was written, Ephesians 5, in that culture, women were treated as little more than property. So Paul's words here were like this radical declaration of value and freedom for women in a culture where they were not valued. So this passage is amazing in what it is saying in that culture and to us as well. So it is this huge declaration of value and freedom for women, but yet some Christian men continue to use this passage as a way to demean and control and in some cases abuse their wives. I just read a statistic, floored me, broke my heart, said 30% of women in marriages, 30% of women in marriage experience abuse from their husbands. That is so wrong. That is so wrong. As husbands, we should be the primary ones who are pouring life and value into our wives. That's the point of Ephesians 5. 
Are we loving our wife the way Christ loved the church? Or are we interpreting scripture in a way that actually keeps our wife's heart in captivity? Again, the issue here in Luke 13 is freedom. It's freedom. Jesus confronts the synagogue leader because his religious convictions are actually promoting the opposite of freedom. His religious interpretation of the Bible is actually putting people in bondage. It's blinding him to the heart of people. He is missing the heart of God in the midst of his religious zeal. So the question is, where might that be happening in our lives? I gave a couple examples, but there are others. Where might this be happening in our lives? Now, please hear me here. I'm not, I'm not talking about us minimizing Scripture or moving away from the authority of Scripture. I'm not talking about any of that. But here's the deal. When Scripture is fully alive in us, it should result in freedom. Right? When Scripture is fully alive in us, it should result in freedom, in a greater freedom in our own hearts, as well as a greater freedom that is released in the lives of others, a greater love that people around us experience as well. Is that, is it that way? Is that happening in our understanding and embracing of Scripture? Now, I love where Jesus takes this conversation. Look, look at the beginning of verse 17. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Okay, so what is the connection between these two parables here and what the people just observed happening? Clearly it's connected. So what is the connection here between the parables and what the people observed happening in the synagogue a few minutes before? Here, here's the connection. All that these people knew at that point, all they knew was religion. That's all they knew. That's what their leaders taught them. This focus on external behaviors, following all these 672 man-made commands for the Sabbath, right? Following all these man-made commands because you were supposed to in order to try and be acceptable to God. So what does Jesus offer us instead? Comparatively speaking, feels like a mustard seed. <laughs> it feels like a mustard seed. It feels like a little bit of yeast. It is not this complex set of rules that you have to try hard to follow. Rather, it is this very simple reality of being loved by Jesus and letting that love spill over into how we treat other people. It is not complicated. It's not complicated. But, here, but here's what's so cool. That little amount of yeast 
works its way into a huge batch of dough. That, that little tiny mustard seed, when planted, it grows into this amazing tree and birds come and perch in its branches. See, in other words, this love, the love of Jesus has the power to not only set us free, but to offer freedom to others, offer freedom to a hurting world. See, for me personally, for me, Jesus' words here are so inspiring and they are so encouraging. I don't need a whole new set of rules and regulations to be transformed by Jesus. I tried that early on in my Christian life, <laughs> trying to keep all these man-made rules so that I could be a good Christian and keep God happy. But all that did, all that did was become bondage for me. That's all it did. It just placed me in bondage. Because not only did I, I never felt like I measured up, so there was this fear, fear of punishment. So there was this, I never felt like I measured up. But not only that, I started looking down on other people who weren't keeping my rules nearly as well as I was. It was bondage. It was bondage, and I didn't see it. So how did I begin to break free from that? Well, God began placing in my heart the yeast of his love, the yeast of his love through various experiences, through panic attacks and worship songs and prayer times and scriptures. And that yeast, a little bit of yeast, but over time has continued to permeate this 170-pound lump of dough, bringing Jesus' love into places where my shame will start to surface or where my fear of failure begins to rear its ugly head. And, and so my encouragement to you, here's my encouragement to you. Let Jesus' love do its work in you. Let his love do its work in you. It may initially feel small and insignificant compared to all the things going on in your life and around you, but that's okay. It's okay that it's small. Jesus' love has the power to multiply in us. It has the power to multiply in us, bringing greater freedom into those places where we have been held captive by the lies of the enemy or by the shackles of religion. His love is that powerful. It's that powerful. Amen. Let's pray together. So let's just quiet our hearts and think for a moment with open hearts just about the word that we've just interacted with. And what is God saying to you, to me, by way of response? First of all, are there any places of pain, of wounding, where you kind of sense that Jesus is saying, hey, there are some lies here you're believing. And they're holding you in cap they're holding you in captivity. They're keeping you from experiencing all that I have for you. So Jesus, I just want to pray for anyone who here is just saying, Yeah, that's that's me, or there's there are places I need to explore. 
these places where we've heard these lies and we just assume they're, they're, they're our thoughts and that they're true, but they're not. And so I want to pray, Lord, I just, dec- just this declaration of freedom, the yeast and the mustard seed of freedom in our hearts, that as we explore and invite you into these places where these lies have been lodged, that you would bring truth, you would speak truth to our hearts. So I'm going to ask you, Lord, I just ask you to expose the lies. Expose them so they're so obvious that we would see them so clearly. And God, I just pray for anyone who is battling suicide. They're battling these thoughts of despair. I pray, Jesus, you would open their ears to hear your love for them. And that you would bring healing and life that you would speak truth to our hearts, Lord. And that when we've been bent over under these lies for so long, we would begin to straighten up because of the fact that your truth sets us free. And so I pray that for every person here. Second area I just want us to think about here, are there any places, Lord, are there any places, just show us where our religious observance observances, even maybe our misapplication of scripture is actually producing bondage, oppression, a mistreating of other people, and we don't even see it. Would you open our eyes to see it? And would you forgive us and cleanse us and help us be the people that you want us to be, freed from these shackles of religion, freed to pour life into other people and move towards other people, even people maybe we disagree with, to move towards them and to love them. God, I pray for those husbands, those of us as husbands here, I pray you would help us apply Ephesians 5 in a way that pours life into our wife and loves her and protects her and values and nourishes her, Lord. I pray that that would be the kind of head we are in our marriage. So I pray, Lord, you would apply this in whatever way you want, whatever context, open our eyes to see where we've been blinded by our religious observances and missed your heart. And we, as you bring these to mind, we just repent of them, Lord. So we, we thank you, Jesus, that the truth sets us free. The truth of who you are, that you set us free, Jesus, from Satan's oppression, from these emotional wounds and the lies we're believing, and also from this religion, any of these things that bind us, you set us free because of your death on the cross. And we're so grateful for that. So we have a... a 
uh, a cool opportunity here to, um, we're going to respond. We've already responded in prayer. We're going to respond in some songs that have been chosen as it relates to this theme we've been looking at. But we're also in the midst of the worship response. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper. And so let me just mention a couple things about this um, when the music starts, um, there, there are tables around the room. You can just go to a table and um, take a piece of bread and dip it in. The bread represents Jesus' body. Dip it in the juice, which represents his blood. And then you can partake right there. Or you can go back to your seat and partake. And this is a significant experience for us. As we partake, if you're a believer in Jesus, I encourage you to think about the freedom that Jesus is working in you through his love, and just be grateful to him for that. There are also maybe others of you, um, and you are not um, a believer in Jesus yet. Maybe you're still exploring that. You don't have to feel any obligation to partake. Um, but I do want us to pray. I want to pray for this response, and I want to give an opportunity as well. There may be some of you here who um, you realize what you need is Jesus, Maybe you've never placed your trust in him and received the gift of salvation that he offers you and this promise of freedom in him. So if that's you, if you have never placed your trust in Jesus, I want to lead you in a prayer where you can do that right now. You can have your sins forgiven and Jesus can come live in you forever and change you from the inside out. So if that's you, pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy. You are complete and perfect. And I'm not. I've done my own thing. I've gone my own way. And I realize that my sin separates me from you. But I don't want to be separated from you. Even though there's nothing I could do to get to you, to earn my way to you, you came to me through the person of Jesus. Jesus, you came to earth and you died on the cross for me. You died in my place. You took the penalty I should have paid. I deserve to pay. Thank you for doing that. And I choose right now to place my trust in you. I bring you all my failures and fears, my doubts and questions and sins. I bring it all to you and I leave it with you. And in exchange for all that, I receive your life. Forgive my sin, past, present, and future. And come live in me, changing me from the inside out through the power of your spirit. So God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Thank you, Lord. Help them now grow in this relationship with you as the yeast, the mustard seed of your love and your kingdom does its work. So if you prayed that prayer with me, I invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper in just a moment. We encourage you to partake as a new believer in Jesus. And so for all of us, Lord, thank you for the freedom you offer us. 
and the opportunity now to not only worship you and to open our hearts to you in worship, but also to partake of the Lord's Supper as this reminder of the incredible lengths you went to, Jesus, to set us free. We're so grateful. We love you. We praise you. Set us free right now to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.